and let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are faithful, that you are a rock that we can depend on, our all in all. And so we pray that as we look at your word, you would give us a growing understanding of you and your grace to us in Jesus. Our hearts are so often cold, our minds so full of other things, but we pray now that you would warm our hearts and focus our minds so that by your spirit we are changed and renewed. For your glory we ask it. Amen. Do take a seat. Uh, Do turn with me to Zechariah chapter 1, page 950 in the Bibles. Uh, Because we're looking today at the first two of eight visions that Zechariah received. And there's a great statement in the middle of the first vision, isn't there? Verse 11, it's uh, printed on the the handout as well. As the report comes back from the horsemen, we have gone throughout the earth and found the whole world at rest and in peace. Uh, It's the dream of mankind, isn't it? The end of war, of crime, of disaster, of disease, uh, to switch on the news at last and see nothing of Burmese cyclones or Chinese earthquakes or youth knife violence or Zimbabwe election rigging or Middle East tensions or family abuse or political sleaze. Don't we long for a time like that? Perhaps it seems too good, uh, too good to be true, too good to be possible so that in practice we don't long for it, even though we can see how great it would be to have a world like that. Wouldn't we love to see the world at rest and in peace as this report comes back? What if we would then? Zechariah chapter 1 will shock us because here world peace is awful news. A world at rest leads to outcry. Verse 12. Lord Almighty, how long will you withhold mercy? Because you see, the world that is at rest is a world united in its opposition to God and its hostility to God's people. Now let me remind you again of the the context of Zechariah. You'll see it on the other side of the handout. uh, The same information that we looked at last week. At verse 7, the beginning of our reading, says that Zechariah had these visions on the 24th day of the 11th month in the second year of Darius, which in English means it was the 15th of February, 519 BC. Uh, And so on the timeline there, you can see that that places Zechariah in the time of the return from exile. In 586, Jerusalem had had fallen to the Babylonians. Uh, God's people were taken into exile. Uh, All as judgment on them because of their rebellion against God. Uh, But then about 50 years later, the Babylonians fell in turn, this time to the Persians, and it was under the Persian king Cyrus and then Darius that the Jews were allowed to return home, uh, though still very much under the jurisdiction of that Persian kingdom. Uh, so you see, in Zechariah's day, for the whole of most people's lives, Israel had been a defeated and downtrodden nation, uh, pushed around from country to country by nations far stronger than them, Nations who followed false gods. And they could do nothing about it. They were powerless. 
Indeed, even now, as they tried to rebuild their city, to rebuild the temple in particular, they had faced renewed opposition from those around them, so that the work had ground to a halt for a full decade. Now, Psalm 2, which, uh, though from a different time, has lots of similarity with Zechariah 1, it talks about the nations conspiring, gathering together against the Lord. That's the context here. Zechariah lived in a world united in its opposition to God and its hostility to his people. And so to discover that that world, that those nations who oppressed Israel are at peace, that they have not a care in the world, it makes him cry out for justice. To cry out to the Lord, when will you act? My guess is that when we look at the news, we worry that God is absent when things are going wrong. The cyclones, the earthquakes, the political corruption. But then we thank God for being at work when we see nations, perhaps even continents, at peace, enjoying stability and security. Yet note here that for Zechariah the opposite was true. He saw nations at peace and in rest and he cries out to the Lord to act. Now we need to take care before we apply Zechariah's attitude too simply to our attitudes today. Christians today do not form a nation the way God's people did then. And back then the the well-being of Israel, of the land of Israel, of the rebuilding of the temple in particular, were intertwined with the fulfilment of God's covenant promises in a way which the well-being of the church today is not an exact parallel now that we live after Jesus. But nonetheless, don't we, shouldn't we, share some of Zechariah's outrage when the reports come in? When we hear of countries in the Middle East rolling in money from their oil reserves and yet which bitterly persecute Christians, facing converts with the death penalty even, don't we cry out, how long? Or when we see our own society content, at rest and in peace as it is to follow its own gods, Obsessed with money, with careers, with alcohol, with sport, with celebrity. Shouldn't we cry out, how long? It's not just true at a national level either, is it? When we see people who have no time for God or the gospel, and yet they lack for nothing, at rest and in peace, don't we cry out, how long? That's the cry of Psalm 73. This is what the wicked are like, always carefree, they increase in wealth. Surely in vain I've kept my heart pure, in vain I wash my hands in innocence. All day long I have been plagued, I've been punished every morning. How long, Lord Almighty? Now these two visions of Zechariah will force us to see the world through God's eyes. And more than that, it will allow us to see past the world to the Lord Almighty who stands behind it. And who, when asked, how long, he responds. And so in the face of this world at peace, 
these visions, I think, present us with three themes which change our thinking and give us hope. Uh, The headings are there on the handout. And the first is the Lord's control. Now let me read again from verse 7. As I do, let me explain. There are three characters in the vision. Uh, There's Zechariah himself, of course. Uh, But then there are two angels. Uh, One he calls uh, the angel who was talking with me. Uh, You'll see that crop up time and again. Uh, And that angel is an interpreting angel alongside Zechariah. Uh, We'll see him in seven of the eight visions. And he's there to explain what Zechariah sees with his eyes, a sort of running commentator. But then there's a third character, a second angel, verse 11, the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees. And that, I take it, is the same person who back in eight uh, we see as a man riding on a horse, again amongst those trees. So with those characters in mind, let me read again from verse 7. On the 24th day of the 11th month, the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo. During the night I had a vision, and there before me was a man riding a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in a ravine. Behind him were red, brown, and white horses. I asked, what are these, my Lord? The angel who was talking with me answered, I will show you what they are. Then the man standing among the myrtle trees explained, They are the ones the Lord has sent to go throughout the earth. And they reported to the angel of the Lord, who was standing among the myrtle trees, We have gone throughout the earth and found the whole world at rest and in peace. Then the angel of the Lord said, Lord Almighty, how long will you withhold mercy from Jerusalem and from the towns of Judah, which you have been angry with these seventy years? Well, now, in these days of the Persian Empire, uh, there was indeed a peace and stability that the region had not enjoyed for many a year. And it was common practice in those days for the Persian king to send out horsemen uh, to ride out to the four corners of the empire and then bring back reports of how things were going. And so to see a horseman like that uh, riding through your hometown uh, was, of course, just another reminder that you lived under the power, under the watch of another. And yet here in this vision, uh, the horsemen who have gone across the world to bring back their reports have been sent by a greater king, the Lord. And so it is to him that they bring their report. This is a vision uh, that reminds us that despite appearances... It is the Lord who is in control. Uh, The Persian king could send out his horses and be pleased to hear that things were going well. But it is not he, but the Lord who is in control. The Lord who sees everything. Uh, The Lord who will act. I wonder if perhaps we need to hear the challenge of those verses. Uh, Perhaps like the Persians, we've left God out of the picture. Maybe we've succumbed to the thinking of our nation, uh, seeking peace and rest in the wrong places. Uh, Through financial security, through fighting disease, through climate control, whatever it is, 
And do we, like them, send out our own horsemen to check on our personal empires? To check that all is well. A quick ten minutes checking our bank account balances on the internet. The weekend ring round the family to check all is well. The medical checkup, the, the career review. Do we trust those things? Uh, When those things come back all clear, do we think that all is well? That we are in control? When all along the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. We must not feel at ease if we are ignoring God. We must not feel secure if we do not depend on him. In Psalm 2, again, a psalm with striking similarity to this passage. What is the Lord's response to these nations that plot and conspire against him? It is to laugh, to scoff. So pathetic are their attempts compared with his might and power. So there's a challenge for us, but it's also a great reminder that the Lord does not abandon his people. He has not lost control. When today we see the church persecuted across the world, when we see the mounting pressure of being a Christian in this country today, when at a personal level we have to endure mocking and abuse from people close to us, the Lord sees, he hears the report And he speaks words of comfort. Uh, The next heading on the sheet there. Uh, But before we hear them, uh, be aware, these words of comfort are no soft platitudes. No divine there, there. No, they are words of anger and of action. And they come from Almighty God. Have a look again at verse 13. So the Lord spoke kind and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. Then the angel who was speaking to me said, Proclaim this word. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I am very jealous for Jerusalem and Zion, but I am very angry with the nations that feel secure. I was only a little angry, but they added to the calamity. The Lord is jealous for his people and angry with nations that feel secure. And yet perhaps both those emotions seem unsuitable for God. How can a perfect and holy God be jealous and angry? We need to take a a moment to understand what's being said. First of all, the Lord's jealousy for Jerusalem and Zion. Zion there is just another name for Jerusalem. Now when we think about the Lord's jealousy, we need to be aware there's a wrong jealousy and there is a right jealousy. A wrong jealousy is when you're jealous of someone. It's because they have some thing or some ability that you don't have, so you envy them. But there is a right jealousy as well, the jealousy that God displays, and it is to be jealous not of his people, but jealous for them. Now, the nearest I can come to explain it is to, to think about my children. I, I'm not to be jealous 
of my children as their father. That would look like, I suppose, me being jealous of their youth um, as they grow up, being jealous that, uh, of the things that they can do, that they do better than I do. Now, that would be bad, wouldn't it? That would be the wrong jealousy. But, but am I not to be jealous for them? Am I not to, to jealously guard them as they grow up, to protect them from harm? Uh, from the world outside, to to be jealous for their happiness and joy, making sure that I bring them up in the faith to to know and trust the Lord Jesus, for that is the source of true happiness and joy. That sort of jealousy is precisely what I am to do as their father. And it is that sort of jealousy that God displays for his people. It means that he guards them jealously, It means that he is passionately concerned for their well-being. It means he is zealous for them. So that is his jealousy and of course it's linked with why he is angry with the nations. These nations that feel secure. Nations that have added to their calamity by treating Israel harshly. Now I know there's a wrong sort of anger. uh, The sort of anger that results from a a loss of self-control, an overreaction to other people. But there is a right anger too, isn't there? A right anger that is measured, that doesn't overreact, but nonetheless sees evil for what it is and will not ignore it and will not tolerate it. We have that right anger sometimes when we switch on the news and see some of those headlines. And here the Lord is right to be angry with nations that not only ignore him, following false gods, that not only oppress his people, but that also congratulate themselves about it. That feel secure, that are at rest and in peace, even in their rebellion. Now the Lord is jealous for his people. He is angry with the nations. And that leads to the real words of comfort there. In verses 16 and 17. Let me read those again. Therefore, this is what the Lord says, I will return to Jerusalem with mercy, and there my house will be rebuilt, and the measuring line will be stretched out over Jerusalem, declares the Lord Almighty. Proclaim further, this is what the Lord Almighty says, My towns will again overflow with prosperity, And the Lord will again comfort Zion and choose Jerusalem. Now to a people returning from exile, a people at the mercy of surrounding nations, the Lord says that he will restore them. It's a promise that will be fleshed out in the third vision that we'll look at in a couple of weeks' time. The problem is that it it never happened. Not really. It's true that thanks to Zechariah and Haggai, the temple was completed. Uh, Thanks to leadership later under Nehemiah, that the city walls of Jerusalem would be rebuilt. And yet we're told that the people who saw it, who were old enough to remember back to the originals, wept at the sight. Because it was so feeble compared with its predecessor. Uh, Yes, the towns of Israel would be 
uh, restored in part, but never again would they overflow with the prosperity they had under David and Solomon. Now instead, this vision points us further. This anticipation of future blessing reaches its fulfilment in Jesus himself. It's because of him that we live secure in a heavenly city, meeting God not in a temple, but in Jesus' own body on the cross. And actually, of course, that's the expectation. Uh, Even back in the Old Testament, in Psalm 2, because there, how will the Lord defeat the nations that are arrayed against him, the nations that he laughs at? It is by installing his king on Zion, the king to whom he says, you are my son. Today I have become your father. So as this uh, first vision ends, where have we got to? Well, the world is at peace, yet God's people are oppressed. But the Lord is in control, and he speaks words of comfort. Comfort because of his attitude, jealously guarding his people, angry with the nations that feel secure without him. And comfort because of what he will do. He will restore his people. But the question remains, how? How will that come about? It's all very well for Zechariah to have this vision one night in mid-February. But the very next morning he was going to wake up in a city that was in ruins under the watchful eye of a superpower. That's one thing for God to promise restoration, but how would it happen? Well, that, I think, is what the second vision is all about. So have a look at verse 18. There's a vision of the Lord's craftsman. Then I looked up, verse 18, and there before me were four horns. I asked the angel who was speaking to me, what are these? He answered me, these are the horns that scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. And the Lord showed me four craftsmen. I asked, what are these coming to do? He answered, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one could raise his head. But the craftsmen have come to terrify them and throw down these horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter its people. So this second vision begins with Zechariah seeing these four horns uh, and not musical instruments, they're, they're animal horns. Symbols of strength, might. Even today, if hunters uh, kill an animal, they keep and mount the horns, don't they? Uh, As a reminder of their victory. Uh, Admittedly, they had guns. I don't think it's ever a fair fight, but uh, horns symbolise strength, like that of a ferocious beast. Indeed, that's what the accompanying Angel explains to Zechariah, isn't it? Verse 21, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one could raise his head. These horns are the nations that oppress God's people. And there are four of them, not because we're supposed to think of four historical regimes, but rather because it's, it's on all sides, through all times. These horns represent every human force that is pitted against God and his people and against four such ferocious beasts. Whom will God send? Well, he sends four men with chisels. Four craftsmen, 
It's pathetic, isn't it? No wonder Zechariah asked in verse 21, what on earth are these going to do? He puts it more politely than that, but then he is talking to an angel. What's going on? Well, the word for craftsman here is, is really quite unusual. And whilst it can mean a worker or a smith, in the Old Testament it is most commonly used of the people who build the temple. Uh, so in Exodus 35, when God endows two men, Bezalel and Aholiab, with special skills to create the items for the tabernacle, the, the temple's forerunner, we're told that in doing so he turns them into master craftsmen. Or in 1 Chronicles 22, when King David is, is sort of having a, a pep talk with his son Solomon as he's about to take over the kingship and will have to build the temple, he says, don't worry, you have many craftsmen. Or in Ezra 3, when the Jews first start rebuilding the temple after their return from exile, they have a collection so that they can hire craftsmen. What will defeat these horns? These ferocious beasts? How will Zechariah and his contemporaries take on a superpower and win? By getting on with building the temple. By re-establishing the place of God's presence with his people. Remember, Zechariah prophesies at a time when the people had given up. They'd stopped work on the temple because it was too difficult, the opposition too intense. But in this vision, they're told that by starting work again, they would take on the might of an empire, one stone at a time. Now for us today, the equivalent will be us pointing people to the true temple, to Jesus Christ the place of God's presence with his people. And it is as we ourselves remain rooted in him and as together we point others toward him that we too can take on a world, a world at peace and in rest in its rejection of God. That's the scale of what's being said here. Despite the enormity of the problem, a whole world gone wrong and happy about it. Bringing people to the Lord Jesus is God's way to change the world. As Psalm 2 ends, Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And so will we. Will we take refuge in Jesus for ourselves, confident that it is in him, it is at the cross that we see the Lord's control as he defeats our every enemy. Confident that at the cross we see the Lord's comfort as he guards his people, protecting them from sin and the devil, even at the cost of his own son. And as he restores us fully into relationship with him. And so will we be like these craftsmen, Will we be ready to point others to our Saviour, trusting that even by what seems such weak and feeble means, our Almighty God can and will change the world? Well, just as I finish, let me read out some verses from 1 Corinthians 1. 
Jews demand miraculous signs, and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would help us to see the world as you see it, and that you would help us to see you as you truly are, as our almighty God, who has all control, and who speaks words of great comfort to his people, and so equip and help us to work for your kingdom and glory, as we trust your Son. Amen.